You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It seems. To me, I've heard that song before. It's from an old familiar score. I know it well, that melody. It's funny how a theme recalls a favorite dream. A dream that brought you so That was Helen Forrest singing I've Heard That Song Before, music by Jules Stein, lyrics by Sammy Cohn. A huge hit when it was released and a classic, a standard today. Sharing that song with you now at the top of the show because it's been stuck in my head all week. That's where my crazy musical theatery, jazz standardy brain went when I heard Donald Trump's speech last week about immigration, his ranting, raving red-faced, spittle-flecked, racist, demagogic speech attacking immigrants to this country. And seemed to me, I've heard this song before. That's all I could, I just went right there. That song started to play in my head. Heard this song before, because we have heard this song before, over and over and over again throughout the history of this country, going back to prior to its founding. Everything that Donald Trump, everything that falls out of his ass, everything that, that slithers out of Ann Coulter's mouth, everything that the people attacking Muslim immigrants, Syrian refugees, Mexican immigrants, immigrants from Latin America, everything that they're saying now has been said before in the exact same way, the exact same language about Germans, Irish, Greeks, the Chinese, Catholics, Jews, people with HIV in the 80s even. We have heard this song before. And, and every other time that somebody sang this horrible, racist, shitty, demagogic song before and Americans fell for it, we have been embarrassed looking back at what we did, embarrassed by anti-Irish riots, embarrassed by prohibition, which was animated by anti-German and anti-Irish prejudice, embarrassed by the Chinese Exclusion Act, embarrassed by the internment of the Japanese, embarrassed by anti-Catholicism, embarrassed by attacks on people with HIV over and over and over again. Because this shit, this demagogic, racist, immigrant bashing shit, other bashing shit, it's always wrong. And of course, the Donald Trumps today, the Uncultures today, they would have us believe that they're like some sort of stopped clock that's right every three or four centuries. That this time, oh, this shit that they're saying about these people was said previously about lots of other different groups of people and it was wrong every other time but this time this time they're right this time they got it right this time that stop clock that's only right every three or four centuries this time they've nailed it and we look back now what was said about the irish and their saloons and the germans and their hot dog stands and today mexican immigrants and their taco trucks and we are embarrassed it's so transparently hateful and wrong and ignorant and yet here we are once again, 
in the grip, in the thrall of racist demagoguery. And one of our two political parties has been taken over, seized by racist demagogues. I can't imagine there are a lot of Trump supporters out there who listen to my show, but like me, you may have a relative or two who is falling for this shit. Please go and remind them. Please play I've Heard That Song Before for them and remind them that we have indeed heard this song before and that it was wrong every other time and it is wrong now. You have German relatives, Irish relatives who are falling for this shit. Remind them that what is being said now about Muslims, about Syrian refugees, about immigrants from Mexico, Latin America, is wrong now, just as what was said about their ancestors was wrong then. Incidentally, Stein and Kahn, two immigrants who gave us that beautiful song. Good to remember, you can't love this country. I love that song. I can't, and I love this country. And you can't love this country and hate immigrants because every person, every citizen of this country, with the exception of Native Americans, every other citizen of this country is an immigrant, the child of an immigrant, or the descendant of immigrants. Okay, coming up on the Magnum, Professor Barbara Seneca is here to talk with us about her study looking into why people call cops on parents who turn their backs on their children for even an instant and the sexism and sex phobia that informs that. And tons of your calls all on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight married female from the Midwest calling with a question. My husband and I, we have a fantastic sex life. And just to kind of spice things up, we're considering adding somebody into our bedroom, shall we say, um, not really in the threesome sense, more adding someone as like an observer. Um, I really think it would be very sexy to be making love to my husband and see someone enjoying it as well. Just wondering what's a really safe way to do this. You know, we obviously don't want strangers in our home or be finding someone off Craigslist. And we also, you know, don't want to use any kind of internet places where they could record videos or anything like that. So just really wondering what would be a safe option for us. So you want someone to watch, but you don't want to have a stranger in your home and you don't necessarily want to go to someone else's home for fear that they might record you and you don't want to use the internet Craigslist or other websites to find someone, but presumably you want to be watched by someone you want to be watched by. You want to choose that person. I guess you approach people in restaurants and on street corners and on the bus. You do the pre-internet finding someone thing. You ask mom to set you up with a voyeur. You're going to have to use the tools at your disposal, which are pretty much the internet. It exists to bring that person that you would like to be watched by into your life. There are no guarantees uh, of 100% safety. You have to do your due diligence. You have to vet that person. You have to meet with that person or persons in public. You have to get a good feel for them, draw them out, ask them questions. You need to establish that this might be someone that you feel safe getting with in your own home. Or you guys then would have to pop for a hotel room if you don't want that person in your home and put on that show in a space that you control that isn't your space. So a hotel room that you rented and that person is invited to drop by. Your other option are sex clubs, but then you're not going to be in control of who watches you. If you go to a sex club, if you go to a swingers club, if you go to a sex labyrinth, then anybody can stand in the corners and observe you. And maybe that would be a better option for you. If there's a good swingers club or sex club in your area, 
you might want to drop by for the munch or the orientation meeting. You might want to look at their website and decide if that's where you could get your feet wet. And who knows? Maybe you would meet people there that you would want to then invite to come to that hotel room you're going to rent or if you felt comfortable enough with them coming to your house for the show or going to their house for the show. But there will always be risk. You can do all your due diligence. You can really vet the shit out of somebody and then find as the relationship unfolds or the evening unfolds that you don't feel as comfortable or as safe with them as you thought you did or hoped you would. Or you can end up going to someone's house because you feel super safe with them and they're making videotapes without your permission or consent. There's always going to be some element of danger and risk. I think for this kind of fantasy, the place with the least risk for you might be the sex club, might be the established swingers club with rules and regulations and a membership committee and everything else that creates these safeties and these controls. But again, in that arena, you don't get to pick the person who watches you. That person may self-select. Hello, Dan. I'm a tech savvy at risk youth. This is on behalf of my friend who has a question about conservative families and fluid relationships. So um, backstory, he grew up in a Christian conservative family and made the choice to break away from that lifestyle and become his own person, if you will. At this point in his life, he's dating non-monogamously and has come into a relationship dynamic with a couple where that's approaching some level of seriousness while seeing some other people. And he's struggling with how or with the specific scenario of what it would look like to bring home this couple that he's seeing and how he would talk about it with his more conservative family. Of course, he can see the option, you know, saying, this is my girlfriend and this is my friend when referring to his male partner, but that actually the lack of authenticity and, and lack of truthfulness is a really painful uh, prospect for him to think about. And then by the same token, his mother's not totally well and he knows that this news would be super intense for his family and cause maybe physical pain to her as well as a sort of rupture in the family dynamic. So is it worth it? What's a good way to do this? Dan needs your help. Okay. So I had one immediate follow-up question uh, after listening to your friend's uh, characterization of the events here. And so you're from a very conservative family um, you got out from mm -hmm. under their particular brand of conservative sex phobic Christianity. You're now dating mm -hmm. multiple people, including a couple that you have uh, an intense connection with and you're getting serious about. Uh, are, are you bisexual? Are you involved with both members of the couple? Yes, that's the case. And yeah. the question I had, and she didn't say when she was rolling it out is, are you already out as bi to your family or would that be something you were dropping on them with this couple if you brought them home? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the complication is that there's kind of two, two pieces of information that they would be learning at once, which is a polyamorous. I don't technically identify as that, but that only because I don't know, that's a specific community in New York that I'm not very, familiar with, but I do, I mean, that is my practice. So I guess polyamory is the first piece of information. And then secondly, 
it would be bisexual, you know, well, it, sexual orientation, which is not, they don't know about that. Okay. It's really so. three pieces of information by poly and dating a couple. Cause a lot of people who are poly who aren't necessarily dating couples and that sure, triad right. thing is for some people, for some families, right. real head exploder. Yes. Yeah. 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 And my family is like, they know about the couple, the two individuals, they know of them as, you know, close, intimate friends or what have you. Mm. But if I were to, and they assume, you know, cause there's they from, because of their background, they can, you know, obviously like it's way easier for them to imagine that I would be possibly interested in the girl, mm-hmm. but I, you know, but the guy is just sort of like a tag along in their minds. And you're right. It would be a head exploder if I were to say, you know, guys, actually I'm, I'm together with both of them. So I'm not sure how to approach it or if it's even really, I don't know. And your mother is not worth it or at this moment. She's on and off. She's had some chronic health issues for like a decade and she's kind of in and out of good health. And the thing is, she's just so she's pretty high strung. And I think like any, anything that goes vastly, you know, or directly against her belief system if it's a part of my lifestyle, it definitely weighs on her heavily. And mm. I think it would add a lot of stress for her. So, well, that's, um, that's her. I, I don't so I to pick be, my battle. You know, it's good to pick your battles and I don't mean to be cruel, but that's her shit. And you can't let your mother control you with no. drama and fainting couches. And, right. you know, that is a, a mechanism of control that some parents wield over their children. That if you tell me the truth about your life and it's not something I approve of or I like, I will be so upset that I will be physically sick or harmed or, and you will have done that to me. Right. Not I am choosing to perform right. harm in an effort to control you and perhaps, no. perhaps actually getting myself to harm by psyching myself up to harm in an effort to control you. You are harming me and that's not the way it works that they are harming right. themselves. Like if you tell me the truth, I'm going to hit myself in the head with this hammer and it's on you. No, you hit yourself yeah. in the, ham- head, the well, hammer, it's on you. To be fair, I'm I'm making that assumption for her, mm. which is maybe not true. She might she might be totally fine and not hurt herself or be hurt physically. You know, she might be able to handle it, but I'm kind of at this point protecting her and my family from that, you know. And you know, I don't have a I, I was going to I was going to after saying all that, I was going to then contradict myself and tell you a story about when I came out to my mom. Mm-hmm. was two years after I wanted to come out to my mom. I was ready to come out to my mom yeah. when I was 16 years old. And then my dad left and initiated a mm-hmm. divorce and my mother was destroyed. And I stood there mm-hmm. thinking, well, I can't tell her now. The right it'll kill her. Yeah. And yeah. talking about it with my brother at the time, can't tell her now it'll kill her. And so I waited yeah. two years, not because I wasn't ready to come out, but because I was being considerate of where she was at that moment. And I didn't think, it was the right time. Yeah. And I do think that that's yeah. something that adults, and I was only a teenager, but adults can weigh when, you know, bringing big truths to their parents. Like, you know, if mom is in the cancer ward and dad is dealing with that, maybe not the right time to lay some right. big thing on your parents. Maybe the right and responsible yeah. good kid thing yeah. to do is to suck it up for six months or a year until everybody's back on their feet and then roll it out. 
and give them something yeah. else to worry about, brand new to worry about, which is what I did. So I yeah. don't think your impulse to parcel this out or to wait uh, or to take into consideration where your mother's at is necessarily a bad impulse. I think it speaks well of you. And indeed, that's what I did from coming out to my parents at 16. I do think, though, that with the particular set of circumstances you describe, the first order of business is to come out to your parents as bi. And it's unfair to the couple that you're involved with to make them the locus or focus of that. Like, hey, here are my friends. I'm fucking them both. Ta-da! That will put you this couple that you're dating in a very uncomfortable position, particularly if your parents do the pivot that a lot of conservative parents do and get angry at the romantic partner or partners of the kid who's just come out to them. Right. So you need to separate this coming out as bi from coming out as poly or introducing your family to these two people who are very yeah. important to you so that they don't yeah. suffer, so that your family doesn't punish them. Yeah. And yeah. Stri- and a little bit of strategy that I would recommend that sometimes mm-hmm. when it comes to poly shit or even gay shit, it helps sometimes if the family meets the person first and interacts with them a little bit before finding out who they are to you exactly when mm-hmm. it comes to a conservative family that if you are home and this couple happens to be in the area and you bring them around and they meet your parents and everybody sits around and has a nice conversation and then your parents go or they leave and your parents are like oh they're such a nice couple then six months later when you come out to your parents as poly and say incidentally that couple that very nice couple those people you liked very much they're my boyfriend and girlfriend that can help lay the groundwork for creating the fissure, the little crack in your parents' brain that you can drive the wedge into to open their minds. That if they meet yeah. them right away, and this is the personal, and I'm not saying yeah. this is the, how it has to be for everybody. This is the only way to do it. This is all way to do it. But if they meet them first mm-hmm. and like them first, sometimes that's that yeah. gives you some leverage when your parents start freaking out about these evil people who've led you astray. They're not evil people. You right. sit there and watch the game with them. You shot the shit about whatever yeah you agreed with them about this and this and this they're good people you've said so yourself when you met them now you know a little bit more about them just like you know more about me now when like six months ago a year ago when i told you i was bi you know more about me but i'm the same person you know more about them they're the same people yeah yeah do you think there would be a chance this could backfire in the sense that like they would feel a little betrayed like i kept that from them if they were meeting them and I just told them they're my friends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. But you can say to them, you're judgy and I wanted you to meet them and get to know them a little <laughs> bit first before you judged them for this other stuff. Cause I didn't think you'd be fair. Yeah. Like you can be honest and direct with your parents yeah. about why you employed this yeah. strategy. I thought yeah. it important that you meet this person first before you knew who they were to me because I didn't think you would give them a fair shake. And was I not right? Here you are freaking out at me about this. Was that not right of me to do that? Because I wanted you to see them not as a yeah. three-way sex act. I wanted you to see them not as not as a threesome, not as a spit roasting, but as human beings first. And now you have the horrible mental right. images. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, I sometimes say poly people and people in polyamorous relationships are kind of where gay people were 30 years ago in dealing with family sometimes. And I think that's often very true. And it used to be parents would meet the friend before finding out the friend was the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a way of sort of, you know, 
slowly rolling out this truth about yourself. Let the parents get to know and like the boyfriend. Then they find out he's the boyfriend and then they have to reconcile those conflicting feelings and impulses. Ah, you're fucking my son. You're sodomizing my son. I hate you. I hate you. Oh, but you're such a nice person. Yeah. And you were so kind at Thanksgiving. Ah, what do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? And usually (laughs) 30 years ago in the reconciling of that, they would come around to accepting and loving the boyfriend eventually because that cognitive dissonance had been intentionally and strategically introduced. It's not really the way a lot of lesbians or gay people do it now, but you do see some poly people doing this now. And I don't think that plucking this strategy off the shelf and blowing the dust off it and taking it from the gays and applying it in the, uh, you know, applying it in the poly is necessarily the wrong thing to do. No, I can see it working. I think, I mean, my parents have had exposure to friends of mine who are homosexual or, trans for example so they're they're like they have exposure but i think it's just that extra step of oh my son is that's his lifestyle too i mean that's like gonna blow their minds a little bit but they're definitely when they have like the personal contact with somebody that they can get to know they're very very warm and accepting but there you go you know they haven't had to deal with that with their own son yet but it'll um, help if you stop I, referring I, to it as a lifestyle though Maybe the poly thing, some people would say it's a lifestyle. Some people would say it's a sexual orientation. Some people would say it's a relationship model. Right. But the bi thing, don't call it a lifestyle. They're not, they're not getting to know your lifestyle. They're getting to know who you are. It's not something you're okay, doing. Yeah, it's who you a- are. And you want your parents to know who you are. And you want them to know the people that you love because you want all the people yeah. that you love to know each other. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of thinking of the poly thing in terms of lifestyle. And the problem is, like, since I have multiple partners, and I this is maybe a question I have to decide for myself, but who and how many and at what point in the relationship is it, like, you know, a Do your parents time need to know I everyone you're be. fucking, right? Do your parents need to meet every last person you're fucking and know that you're fucking every last person that you're fucking? Not necessarily. You run your parents on a need-to-know basis. If you're in a serious, committed relationship with this couple and there's some uh, tacking toward permanence or living together and they're going to be really woven into your life in an integral way, then they need to know them and know who they are to you. But if you have a boyfriend on the side or a girlfriend on the side or you have close friends that you're also sexual with or intimate with, if you have friends that you fuck, maybe your parents don't need to know that because it's not – yeah something that's necessarily relevant. Yeah. You yeah, know, my, yeah. my, my mother sat and chatted very amiably at my uh, Terry and I's 10th uh, anniversary party with somebody that we have three ways with. And I didn't walk over there and say, Oh yeah, mom, that guy you were talking with the last half hour, <laughs> he's fucked us both. Like you don't need, she didn't need to know that he's just a really good friend of ours. And that was enough for my mother. She didn't know about the genital area friendship. And you can make those determinations on a case-by-case basis. This couple, important to you, uh, a, a relationship that is going to impact you emotionally and, and the structure of your life and how you live and where you live like a partner would, like an individual partner would. Right. Yeah, they probably need to know them and know who they are to you. A friends with benefits, yeah. even a really close one, maybe that can just be a friend. Yeah, that's a fine line that I'm trying to negotiate now because this is – relatively new territory and um 
there's really no, I don't really have like very superfluous relations, you know, they're all like, there's only a few partners and they're all ongoing, you Mm -hmm. know, relationships. So it's kind of, it's kind of a blurry line for me to figure out who, who is really like that at that level that I should be telling my family because I know what it's going to do to my family. They're going to, it's going to be very confusing for them. So I just want to, They'll get used to it. Try and... They'll get over it. Yeah. Good luck, man. Thanks so much for calling. This is really helpful and, and pleasant surprise. You're welcome. Buy first. Come out as buy first. Got it. Thanks for the tip. Hey, Dan. Hot mess here in California. I'm 46 years old. Uh, I've been married for 20 plus years. Got kids. Uh, I'd love to say I'm bi, but I think I'm just a big mo. Nobody knows except for my therapist. Throughout my marriage, I have played around a bit on Craigslist. Just uh, uh, I have not been faithful. Uh, That has been the demise of my marriage. I'm now going through a divorce. And so uh, I have never been in a gay relationship. I've never slept with a man overnight. And I guess here's my question. How do I how do I meet? good quality men uh, in this day and age. When I got married, there was no such thing as online dating. I don't know if I'm comfortable in that atmosphere. Uh, So I am calling for advice. How do I come out in an authentic way? I sort of want to go through a bit of a whore phase, but at the same time, I don't want to uh, be hooking up on Craigslist. That's not the place I would like to be. I'd like to, to meet real authentic men who want to help me to come out and to finally be my authentic self. There's no orientation committee here in openly gay land. The guys you meet that you're going to meet when you come out and you get out there uh, and you start dating on Craigslist or bars or wherever the venue you choose to go find the dudes whose dicks you're going to suck or get your dick sucked by – They're not going to form a little committee to help you come out as your authentic self. Your responsibility is to come out as your authentic self. That isn't something that the gay community is set up to help you do, although there are probably coming out support groups in your area. It's not the gay community's responsibility to do that for you. It's your responsibility to do that for yourself. So get yourself a gay positive therapist. Get yourself into a coming out in middle age support group. They exist. They're out there. Get on Google. And then get out there and meet the guys you're going to meet. Coming out stories are something that a lot of gay people share, not just the experience of coming out, but they share them. They talk about their coming out stories because it is, for many of us, the one big thing we have in common. It is our hero's journey, right? Not to put too heroic a gloss on it. It is our hero's journey. It is this struggle that we had to confront, these obstacles we had to overcome, in achieving our authentic selfedness and coming the fuck out of the closet and being who we actually are. And so comparing your coming out stories, when did you figure it out? When did you tell your parents? When did you start telling the truth? That's something that gay people put a drink or two in them and, or not put tea in them and they will blab and blab and blab about that. And maybe hearing those stories will help you, but you just got to get out there and meet some homos to start hearing those stories. And maybe that'll function for you as the coming out support group ersatz or the orientation committee that doesn't actually exist, but perhaps you can assemble organically for yourself. How do you meet men? You get online, you create profiles on your grinders, your OK Cupids, your 
recons, your scruffs, your tinders. You just get out there. You put yourself out there on the internet. You also put yourself out there physically. And the internet has more options for you than skeezy, skeezy Craigslist. Not that you won't find authentic people on Craigslist. There are people who have found authentic people on Craigslist. You're an authentic person. If you put your nad on Craigslist, then there's an authentic person on Craigslist. Same goes for other authentic people. And you get out there and you go out there and you socialize. You get into bars. You get into clubs. You get into organizations and groups that aren't necessarily drinking and dancing related. You find your spot. You find your place. The gay community, sometimes I talk about this with younger people who are coming out. They have this idea because they've heard, oh, gay community, gay community, my gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. They have this expectation that once they get out there and they're out and they're gay, everyone's going to be nice and everyone's going to be wonderful and everyone wants to help them. And it's just not fucking true. There are nice and wonderful and helpful people out there. But the gay community is really a space where you can create your own community. You can assemble the people that you want to be with, have sex with go out with, hang out with, who are there to help you and you help them. But that's not just going to be handed to you. It's not like you come out and you enter the gay community and you're assigned a buddy or 12 who are going to be there for you and help you unearth your authentic self. You have to unearth your authentic self yourself and you have to go find your friends, go find your lovers, go truffle pigging into gay land and find your own community and create your own community. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Calling from California. I like to follow guys. Um, an example would be to walk after a dude for a few blocks or so. Or I especially like biking the same route as a dude for a bit. It never goes beyond me following them in that moment. And I consider this really harmless. I'm not sure if I like it because as a woman in the society, we don't often get to feel power over a man. And I feel like by doing this, it gives rise to the idea of predatory power, especially the predatory power that men have over women. And just the idea of me possessing that power as a female over a man turns me on. And I'm wondering if this is okay, especially as someone who has been followed before. You know, I feel like it's scary and it ruins your day and it's annoying. But for me... I mean, as a woman, I don't I mean, is this okay? <laughs> I can't tell if this is like totally fucked up or totally harmless. Let's pretend that you were a man and you were calling about your hobby, the secret thrill you got following women around. Would that be okay? Absolutely fucking not. That would not be okay. Because women, as you have been, are followed, are stalked, are the victims of sexual violence. And a lot of that sexual violence begins when some strange man, although most women who are sexually assaulted or raped or raped by somebody they know, but a lot of that violence originates in some strange man following or stalking them, following them into a parking garage, following them into their apartment building. And so if you were a man and you were doing this to women, this action of yours would exist in this context of male violence targeting women. And a woman who realized that they were being followed by you if you were a man would feel very unsafe, would feel potentially terrorized. It could ruin her whole day, make her feel uncomfortable on her block, at her place of business, at work, uncomfortable going to get in or out of her car, uncomfortable in the foyer of her apartment building. It could have all these repercussions for that woman because of that context of sexual violence. You, on the other hand, following some dude around who notices perhaps that, wow, that woman's been 
behind me for a block and a half at a significant distance, but close enough. Wonder what's up with that. He's not going to have a meltdown about whether you're going to follow him into the foyer of his apartment building and rape him or attack him. Or he's not going to worry that you're stalking him. So the context is totally different. And the potential impact that your actions might have on somebody that you followed are not comparable. So you can keep doing this. You can keep enjoying this secret thrill, this inversion of this power dynamic, this little bit of revenge that you're taking collectively against all men everywhere, this tiny patch, this psychic bit of self-care, perverse self-care, where you have been stalked in this way by men and every once in a while you follow a man just so that you can flip that script and it makes you feel secret agent, dangerous and powerful and you're reclaiming something very in a, in a very bank shot odd way that I'm going to give my blessing to. A blessing I wouldn't give to a man doing the exact same thing because the context when you do it is entirely different. So you have my blessing. Keep it up. Keep a safe distance. Hey, Dan. I'm a late 20s gay male. I have a question for you. I was online on one of those kind of sharing video websites, you know, when people upload their homemade sex videos online so you can watch and masturbate to. I personally enjoy the webcam stuff because, you know, it's all real boys, real people in their own rooms doing real stuff and not, you know, fancy looking porn stars and all that jazz stuff. But anyway, so here's my question for you. I was on there the other day and I happened to see a friend of mine's younger brother who's about 15, I believe, or 15 or 16 on that site. Obviously a minor, you know, you need to be 18 to be on the site, of course. They want to click, upload a course, and then all that stuff. But here's the thing. I don't think he knows that he was on it because you hear some typing. He looks at the screen. You know, about half the webcam sites are like that. They, you know, half of them, they know they're putting on a performance. They upload it themselves. The other half, you know, they don't know. They may be punk. think you're talking to a girl or might be asking who whether that's talking to a guy or somebody be knowing talk to a guy, not knowing that they're recording and are uploading it. I already did flag the video on the website. But I want to know is should I reach out to my friend or should I reach out to her younger brother? Thank you. You lay out two options at the end of your question. Should I reach out to my friend or should I reach out to her younger brother, the kid in the videos? There's a third option, which is keep your fucking mouth shut and don't say anything to anybody. Flag the videos and You've been a good citizen and you can sleep well at night and back away from this. But the more I thought about it and the more we chit-chatted about it here in the room, the more convinced I became that you do have to say something because he may not know that these videos are being recorded. These videos could come back to haunt him one day if indeed he's being lured online or abused. Not that there aren't a lot of 15 or 16-year-olds out there who are only too happy to post shit to the internet knowingly. But if he's being lured, if somebody is tricking him uh, by webcamming with him and thinking it's convincing him it's private and then that person, that third party is uploading those videos and that is a thing that happens, he needs to know it. And I think the person to approach, as awkward as it's going to be to have your sister's gay friend who's 10 years older than you tap you on the shoulder and say, I saw your dick, I think you should approach him. Because there's no way of knowing in advance of approaching a sister what the repercussions could be. 
if you tell his sister, is she going to tell in a panic? Is she going to run to mom and dad and tell them? Are they then going to dig through his computer? Is he going to be outed? How are they going to be about if he is gay? And there's no proof if it's just him solo jacking off in these videos that he's gay necessarily. But if they dig through his computer and they find out things that he doesn't want them to know, this could spin out of control. There could be a meltdown that you set off by handing the information to a family member. So I think the thing that you do is you go to him the next time you're at a barbecue, engineer it as soon as possible, getting with him at an event in public, other people around privately and say, I know this is awkward. Just put awkward right out there. First words out of your mouth. This is awkward. I'm going to say something to you and then I'm never going to say it to you again. And I promise it'll never come up again and we won't talk about this ever again. But I was on this website. I saw this video. Clearly you. Do you know these videos are being uploaded? Are you uploading them? It's dangerous. It's illegal. And it could come back to haunt you someday. These videos will live forever online and could be traced back to you. And who knows? If you want to run for Senate in 20 years or 30 years or president, you could be the first gay president. And if these videos are rattling around and if there's still the stigma associated with these sorts of things, and hopefully that stigma will be less and less over time. It'll grow less and less powerful over the time. But right now it exists. It could really fuck your life up. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up and give you a word of warning. And now I'm never going to talk about this with you ever again. And I'm sorry. Sorry I had to bring this to you. And you could add, but I wanted to bring it to you and not to your sister or your mother because I didn't want to fuck your life up. I didn't know how your family would react. So I'm bringing it to you. Please be more thoughtful. Please be more careful. End of awkward conversation. Science. I love science. I love science so much that every once in a while I like to take a break from your calls and talk to scientists and researchers about the results of their latest published studies. So joining me in the studio today, Barbara Sarneka, Associate Professor of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you for coming in, Professor Sarneka. But what do you got for us? Well, what I've got is a study showing that the more people morally disapprove of a situation, the more dangerous they actually think that situation is. So you might expect it to go the opposite way, like a situation is dangerous and therefore people don't think you should do it. But what mm -hmm. we showed was actually the reverse, that if people already think something is wrong with the choice you're making, then they inflate their estimates of how dangerous it is. So they'll think it's even wronger if they disapprove of what They'll think doing. it's even more dangerous. More dangerous, not just if wrong, they disapprove. but dangerous. So we showed this in the domain of people estimating how dangerous it is when children are left on their own for some period of time. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we had people read stories about a mother leaving a child alone for some period of time. So we might say Sandy is 26 and she's um, has them, a daughter who is 10 months old named Olivia. And they like to go to mommy and me class at the gym. And one week, Sandy and Olivia come back to their car and she buckles the baby into the car seat. And, and the car is parked in a cool underground parking garage. And she steps away from the car for a few steps to go pay for their parking. But she's hit by a car and knocked unconscious and whisked off to the hospital. And the baby is alone for 15 minutes until she regains consciousness and tells somebody to go get the baby. And then other people read a slightly different version of the same story where – 
instead of um, the mother being knocked unconscious and leaving the baby alone for a few minutes, the mother chose to leave the baby alone in the same situation, buckled into a car seat, asleep in a cool underground parking garage at the gym. But instead, Mm. she was dashing into the gym to meet her illicit lover, who is the manager of the gym. And they're going to... I don't know, get it on in his office or something. But just for 15 just minutes. Just for 15 minutes. It's quick. <laughs> so a really um, quick yes. knock it out. In, yeah. Instead you of getting knocked efficient. out, they're going to knock it out. When you have young children, you've got to be efficient about right, these things. Right, right, right. So, and then, so the exact same circumstance for the infant. No, Really no difference. Exactly. But what right. and so, takes mom away is very different. Right. So we had five different versions of each story. And what differed between them was... The reason that the mother left was what the mother was doing someplace else. But the situation that the child was actually in was identical. Same Mm -hmm. kid, same place, same period of time, same everything. And of course, logically speaking, the risks should be exactly the same. What we found was that when we asked people on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the safest or least risk and 10 being the most dangerous, most risk, less safe, uh, least safe, how dangerous do you think this is? And what do you think are the risks of something bad happening to the child during the time that the parent is gone? Mm -hmm. And that should logically be the same because those risks are just associated with the time and place and duration and the age of the child and so forth. But people thought those risks were much higher if they had read a version of the story where the mother chose to leave instead of where she left unintentionally because she was hit by a car. And the highest risk, they thought, was when she went to meet her lover. That was the most risk that there would be a stranger abduction or an earthquake or something happening. That's really interesting. Um, You know, you read I read Free Range Parents. I think it's a great blog. And they're constantly citing these cases. There's a woman who left her, like, I think, 10 and 8 or 9 and 7-year-old kids alone for 40 minutes to drive to a store to pick up dinner for them. She was mm-hmm. on vacation, left them alone in some vacation yeah. house and drove and got them dinner and came right back and got arrested. Yeah. She left these nine-year-olds all the time alone. Yeah. Um, there's also a really famous case where a woman left her, I think the same age, nine or 10-year-old daughter alone in a park to play while she worked at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, the kid told somebody else's parent that she was alone in the park where mom worked and mom got arrested. Because every mom who works at McDonald's should be able to afford full-time childcare or be a stay-at-home mom right. while also providing for her kids. It's crazy. Yeah. There's this punitive approach that, yeah. the, that we take to the pressures and constraints and realities of parenting, which is sometimes you have to take your eye off that kid and hope that their yeah. nervous system – not only that, but there's no evidence that it's better for kids. Maybe, never be left alone. Yeah. I mean, you maybe you avoid the 1 in 1.4 million chance that the child will be abducted by a stranger, which is mm-hmm. just – it just really almost never happens. But what's um, interesting, I think, for us here on this crazy sex show about this study is this conflation of danger when the motive to turn the back on the child for, for 15 minutes, leave the kid alone for 15 minutes, is sex. And yeah. That just, to me, says, oh, sex phobia, Christianity, yeah. vicious, uh, punishing, punitive God. Yes, exactly. That if you left your kid alone exactly. for 15 minutes because you got knocked unconscious, then your kid's not going to be in that much danger because God is benevolent. But if you leave your kid alone for 15 minutes to get a blowjob or give one, God will see what you're doing, be so angry, he will kill your kid. God <laughs> will ramp up the danger <laughs> exactly. to your kid to yeah. punish you yeah. for fucking somebody when you really should be in that car. Yeah. Well, you really should be holding your baby at every minute because that's what mothers should do. Are there any cases when you were putting this study together and thinking about it, did you do a version where it was dads leaving their kids alone? We Are did, there any cases yeah. where dads get arrested for we these did. sorts of so actions? We did. So we did – 
six independent replications of the main finding. We did six studies, and I know you're a fan of replication and I large am. sample sizes, so I will tell you <laughs> that um, uh, including the pilot data and all um, – all of the data that we, if we include all the data that we collected, it was over 2,500 subjects. Oh, wow. Um, That's we, giant for a study like it's this. It's big, yeah. Um, and if we're really conservative and we exclude the pilot subjects and we also exclude uh, people who took less than five minutes to do the study because we think maybe they weren't really paying attention or whatever, then we've got more like 1,500 subjects. Mm-hmm. But the it actually doesn't matter. The effects are the same no matter how you do it. Um, so we did. One of the six studies, we replaced the moms and stories with dads. And the effect was still there um, with one caveat. The slight difference was that work-related absences. So there were five reasons that the parent would leave. There was they leave because they're knocked unconscious. They leave because they have to do something to go to work, something to do with work. They leave to relax, like get a massage or I don't know what we said. I don't remember the examples of relax, but it was something, you know, non-sexual, like relaxing. Uh, they leave to volunteer for charity. So this is like um, – Virtue signal. Yes, exactly. So for the gym – so for example, they always had to be at the same place. So the, in this story where the baby is in the gym uh, parking lot, the mother I think was helping stroke patients learn to walk again. For 15 minutes. For but just for 15 minutes. minutes. Um, it was a minor – so a small stroke. <laughs> the, yeah. The other In the other stories, uh, there were children of older ages who were left alone for longer periods of time, like 20, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then the unconscious one. Did I get them all? Work, volunteer, charity, sex, unconscious, right? Okay. And the only difference between the moms and the dads was that when the fathers had to leave for work, it was treated more like an unintentional absence. So it was treated – it had the same level of danger for their children. But not when moms had to leave for work. But not when the moms had to leave for work. Because moms shouldn't work. Moms should just be attached to that kid 24 hours (laughs) a day. So when the moms work, it's seen as a voluntary – uh, leaving your children voluntarily. But when dads work, it's seen as involuntary. Like, what are you going to do? You have to work. It's the equivalent of getting hit by a car. Right. And knocked unconscious. It's, obli- it's obligatory. Nothing you can do about it. And But there was no difference when it came to dad sneaking away to fuck. Was no the kid in any greater danger, perceived danger when dads were fucking? Than moms? No. Yeah. I don't think so. Crazy. I love the sex angle. <laughs> so well, what's the takeaway? We need to find something that people would be really judgmental about. And sex is always the go-to easy. when it comes and, to that. Because you know, parents aren't supposed to have pleasure. No massages. Yeah. Parents aren't supposed to have sex. <laughs> right. Parents aren't supposed to have any time to themselves if they're moms. Yeah. They're not supposed to work either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the takeaway here? And is it a takeaway for the average person or is this a takeaway for courts and cops and prosecutors and idiots who keep getting parents, always moms, arrested for stuff that when I was a kid, I walked to school myself when I was six years old with my older siblings who were seven and eight years old. Like, what's the takeaway here? What do you want people to, to, to glean from your study? So calm the fuck down. Is that the takeaway? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Examine I say, your own prejudices. I would say, yeah, for sure. Uh, I would say the takeaway for regular people and cops and judges and social workers um, and prosecutors is that you should look when you're making decisions about what's dangerous for kids, you should really look at actual data and evidence about what's dangerous Mm -hmm. for kids, right? Because people are afraid of kids being abducted by strangers. That's the number one. In one of the studies, we asked them, what do you think is going to happen while this child is alone in the park or the house or the car or wherever? And their number one answer was going to be abducted by a stranger. And the number two answer was accidents. But 
accidents, the most common accidents are car accidents when you're in a car that's moving. So that kid is safer in that parked car in that garage than that kid would be with mom driving that car. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like when the mom drove the kid to the gym, that was the most dangerous thing that happened. (laughs) Um, And then drowning, fire, falls and poisoning. So really, like what is going to happen to the 10 year old playing in the park? Like what is going to happen to the responsible six year old who asks can I please stay home and watch TV while you go pick up my little brother from daycare? Cause I'm so tired of having to ride around with you on all your errands. You know, mm. I think it's really reasonable for kids to be given a little bit of independence. Well, that kid was arrested because mom was working at McDonald's and that kid was allowed to play in the park during mom's shift. Yeah. The danger was mom getting arrested. The kid wound up yeah. in foster care. Yeah. And, and the kid had a cell phone and the kid was six minutes from home. <sighs> Like a six-minute walk from home and could call mom anytime on the phone. So, so many kids problem? have been abused in foster care. Oh, yeah. That rescuing this kid from the park and yeah. tossing that kid into foster care because mom has a job. Right. Which is part of the whole like welfare reform bullshit of the 90s was about was like put single moms to work. Don't just yeah. – and so she does what everybody mouthed single mothers into doing. Get a job. Provide for your own family. Don't be a burden on the state. And then we'll arrest your kid because you're supposed to be a magic person who can be in two places at one time. Right. Full-time parent, stay-at-home parent, also working mother. And to leave a child alone for a few hours who is a responsible kid, who's shown themselves to be ready for that kind of responsibility, who has a cell phone, who can contact you, who can go home if they want to, is considered so dangerous, right? That the child is just – it's amazing they haven't been snatched by a predator and made the subject of a Liam Neeson movie already, right? (laughs) It's just wrong. It's just not that dangerous. So how do you get this study under the noses of cops and busybodies everywhere so that they chill the fuck out when they see Uh, a kid alone for five minutes? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, what everybody – what seems to happen is that bystanders or onlookers or neighbors call the police and then the police say, well, if we got called, we have to go. Mm -hmm. And then the police, um, it's left up to their intuition. The statutes are worded in such a way that it's like, if the police thinks the child is in, if the police officer thinks the child is in danger, then they can remove them or CPS can remove them or police can arrest the parents. And so I think we need to have more. And cops are going to be in this position where they err on the side of doing something instead of doing nothing. Because if they do nothing and the kid actually was in danger and something happens, then there's going to be this blowback. But if they do something and nothing happens, then there's not going to be blowback necessarily unless there's some bad press. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is, right? If everybody's afraid of liability and everybody is overreacting because they don't want to be seen to be doing nothing, then you have the situation we have now where where the really biggest danger to a child left alone is CPS, right? Is that Child Protective Services is going to come and kidnap them away from their parents. I don't know what the right answer to that is. Maybe uh, if we start writing guidelines and policies and laws more clearly so that they spell out what exactly constitutes significant immediate harm Mm -hmm. or risk or danger. If they start saying, um, like in Maryland, there was the Mativ case where the uh, kids were allowed silver spring, Maryland. They were allowed to walk home from a park that was half a mile from their house. And they got, somebody saw them and reported that unaccompanied children were walking on the street. And so they got picked up by, um, the cops and, driven to their house and the cops made the dad sign a form promising he would never let them out of his sight until the hearing three days later or something. It blew up into a big uh, thing and they got dragged into court and stuff. But Maryland ended up clarifying or revising its um, guidelines on this to say 
unless there's some other actual immediate a tiger yeah exactly unless there's some real harm like i don't think toddlers should be left unattended near swimming pools for example um but i think if a six i don't think toddlers should be left unattended near scientologists (laughs) but it's not up to me so unless i think absent some actual evidence of real risk you shouldn't just assume and police shouldn't assume and courts shouldn't assume that a child alone is necessarily of any age for any amount of time is in necessarily huge danger right it should be but the ultimate takeaway i think for my listeners is if you leave your kid alone for 15 minutes to go fuck somebody and you come back and there are cops there tell them you had a concussion tell (laughs) them you slipped and fell and you just got back from the emergency room (laughs) err on the side of the concussion excuse don't fess up Absolutely. About the blowjob you just gave. <laughs> yes. For folks out there who want to read the study, where can they find it? Calabra, C-O-L-L-A-B-R-A is the name of the journal. And we will um, put a link on our website. All right. Barbara Sarneka, Associate Professor of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us today. Thanks very much, Dan. It's been great. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight man living on the East Coast. I really, really hope you can help me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I've been wanting to make this call for months, but I haven't really worked up the nerve. Basically, my problem boils down to the fact that I just don't last very long in bed. But the real problem is that this has made me feel really nervous and and inadequate to the extent that I almost dread sex, even though I enjoy sex and I want to be having sex and I sometimes have opportunities for sex. Um, I've been sexually active since late high school. I've slept with maybe 10 or 11 women since. Maybe half of those were one-night stands that I look back on with this sense of humiliation and shame and guilt and awfulness um and it's not like women have acted disappointed or like said anything but i still just don't seem physically capable of having the kind of sex that i I'd want to be having um i might mention that uh for about two years i was in a long-term relationship with one woman and i didn't have this problem with her i came when i wanted to come um so i don't know if it's a comfort thing or a confidence thing or what but it sucks i don't want to dread sex anymore i want to get out there so Dan, can you help me figure out how to last longer? And if not, can you help me figure out how to at least stop feeling so hung up on it? Is, should I just ignore it when I'm in, in bed with someone? Is there some way I can communicate with my partner that this is going to happen? That won't be embarrassing or like break the mood. Um, if this is just how my dick works, how can I work with my dick to you know experiment and give maximum pleasure all around? Please help. Um, this sucks. I want to be sex positive, but it's hard. I was listening to your call and I wrote down, this is how your dick works before I heard you say, is this just how my dick works? And I was like, ding, 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 ding. This is just how your dick works. There are in the pipeline, allegedly, theoretically, drugs that are coming to treat premature ejaculation. There are meditation techniques. People struggle with premature ejaculation and push against it and work and work and work. And for the most part, not a lot helps. You sometimes just have to accept that this is how your dick works. And there's a real clue here for you about how your fucking dick works and that when you're in a long-term relationship, the problem seems to go away. So it probably is about anxiety, newness, unfamiliarity, nerves with a new person. And your best course of action is to get out in front of that awkwardness and just own it. If you're going to be with someone for the first time, you tell them, you know, when I'm with somebody – The first couple of times, I tend to come pretty fast. That fixes itself in time. In a long-term relationship, I don't have that problem. But out of the gate, 
I have that problem, so I'm going to eat your pussy until you come 40 times. I have all these toys. We're going to do this and that and the other thing. We're going to roll around. We're going to have great sex, and then I'm going to toss my dick in after you're already coming and there and sated, and my dick is going to make a very special guest appearance at the very end of the sex just to be on the safe side. Who knows? Maybe then if you acknowledge the awkwardness, if you remove the nerves that you have, the nervousness that you have about their expectations – and falling short of them because they're not expecting much then. They're not expecting a 40-minute slam and fuck session from you and your dick. Maybe if you alleviate yourself of that burden of their expectations, you'll last longer. Who knows? But if you don't, then that's how your dick works and that's how you came that time. And if they like you and they want to keep coming back, and I promise you that if you eat her pussy like crazy, if you make her come 10 times, even if you only last a couple of minutes when it gets to the fucking odds are good that she might want to stick around long enough to see how your dick gets better in time in a long-term relationship. And if she doesn't, well, probably not the right partner for you out of the gate then. Acknowledge it. That thing that you feel, humiliation, shame, guilt, awkwardness. You know who I also hear that from? The women I hear that from? Women who need to incorporate a vibrator into intercourse in order to come. And they feel like they're broken somehow, that their genitals don't work right, that the guy's going to be disappointed. And so they go without or they don't come or they just feel terrible and then sex isn't as good for them as it can possibly be. And the advice to them is always just put it out there, put it on the table. Here's the hammer I need to drive that nail. That's how my junk works. Same advice for you. This is how your junk works. Just put it out there. Put it on the table. If she runs screaming from the room, she wasn't anyone you wanted anywhere near your dick anyway. Hi, Dan. I'm a 39-year-old gay guy living in Florida. Um, I have a question. I was recently on vacation in New York, and I was using Grindr in the city. And um, in the course of that, weirdly enough, in my Grindr feed popped up a friend of mine's boyfriend from Florida. Um, And I didn't you know, I didn't think anything was weird. I didn't think he was doing anything wrong. I sent him a message and said, oh, my God, hey, what are you doing here? Do you want to get together and go do something since we're both in the city? Well, he never responded to me. He immediately went offline. And then Grinder still shows him never having come back online again, which I think means he blocked me. So I thought it was weird and kind of shady. And so I'm wondering, do I have some sort of an obligation to my friend to say something about this. I mean, gay relationships are special and different and their own thing. And there's, um, you know, who knows what their allowances are. So I kind of feel like maybe it's none of my business, but then if my friend is being put in a weird situation, then I would want to know that if I were him. Um, The friend is more, is a casual friendship, but, you know, it's one of those people that I I don't see as much as I would like to, but I really like and respect this person and think they're great. The boyfriend has always seemed really cool, too. So um, I don't think anything negative of either one of them. I just thought it was weird. And do you think I should say anything? Who knows what their allowances are? Who knows what their deal might be? I don't know. And you don't know. And you don't even know for sure that that was your friend, your casual friends, boyfriend, pics get stolen all the time. I have heard from people who saw their own pick on Grindr and responded to it and were instantly blocked. There's a million exonerating scenarios that I could spin out here. Maybe their sex life has collapsed 
And when he's out of town, he gets a little so that he can stay in the relationship and stay sane. Maybe they have a DADT agreement and maybe their deal is no sexual contact with anybody that we both know because your casual friend is interested in maintaining the appearance of monogamy. He's interested in being socially monogamous, perceived to be monogamous. And so your casual friend's boyfriend panicked when you saw him on Grinder because he was afraid that it might violate the terms of their DADT thing if he talked to you at all. Just stay the fuck out of it. You can't know what's going on in their relationship. And maybe your casual friend is being cheated on. Maybe if you were in that same circumstance, you would like to know. But maybe they're going through a rough patch and they'll come through this and his boyfriend will straighten up and fly right and they will marry one day and it'll work out in the long run. Unless you intervene at this moment during this rough patch, because then you're guaranteeing that it won't work out for them in the long run. If you could jet ahead 10 years into the future and talk to your friend on their seventh wedding anniversary about whether he would have wanted to know 10 years ago about this incident in New York, he might tell you no, because he's happy and they are good now and solid now. And whatever was going on when they were dating is in the past. But if you bluster in now while they're dating... Yeah, you could end a relationship that 10 years later, both parties would rather not have seen end. So, keep your mouth shut. Asterisk, caveat, small print, bottom of the page. If you knew a casual friend's boyfriend was endangering him, was cooking meth, shooting meth, having sex with a million people, being reckless, not on prep going off and being 30 guys cum dump over a weekend, you might need to take that to your friend. But there are a lot of people on Grindr. Grindr's all you got. There are a lot of people on Grindr who are just flirting, who are just getting a little electric charge, who are pit collecting, who have no intention of following through. So the info you have is not an indictment. And it doesn't rise to the level of bursting into their relationship and potentially upending it, flipping over tables and smashing the crockery based on what you got you keep your mouth shut. If it was much, much, much worse, yeah, then you might have to speak up. But not now. Right now, this circumstance, you keep your mouth shut. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female from Portland, Oregon. And I am needing some advice or insight into a situation I'm dealing with with the maintenance man at my apartment complex. Um, every time he has come to fix something at my house, which is an old house. He has been sexually, made sexual advances towards me. Things like telling me I look good or you're looking hot today. Um, at one point, he even put his arm around me, all which I shrug off, changed the subject. The reason why I'm uncomfortable with this is because I recently had a baby. I'm married. He's married. I have met his wife. I know his wife. And so, you know, I've lived a lot of major cities around the country. I kind of know that culture. He is a black man, very, you know, African black. And I know that sometimes, you know, the way they say hello is looking good. How you doing? You know, kind of just kind of have a very physical welcoming vibe about them anyway. Um, I think what I need some insight about is that I've now, it's come to the point where I'm uncomfortable when he comes into my house to the point that I ended up telling my husband, you know, when, when he comes fixed up, he, he tells me these things and I was expecting my husband to be like, you need to call management, you know, you need to tell somebody, 
Instead, my husband told me, you're probably greenlighting him in some way. And I was just taken aback because I just feel like, you know, that, that plays into the whole, it's your fault you got raped type thing. You, you know, and it's absolutely not. I'm, I'm making no way have I given this guy any clues that I'm interested in him because I'm not, I'm not even, I just had a baby. I'm not even interested in my husband right now. So my first thought was to tell management, you know, get him fired or, or not even get fired, but just, I don't, I, I'm just really uncomfortable with him. It's like right now my garbage disposal is broken. And I know that if I call to get it fixed, he will come. And I'm, I'm kind of feeling vulnerable. You know, I'm, I'm home alone. I have this baby. But at the same time, I'm getting no support from my husband. But I'm, I'm feeling worried and kind of paranoid in my own home right now. So I, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Am I being paranoid? Should, should I just tell this guy, thanks for the compliment, but it's not welcome? Or I don't know what to do. I am so angry right now at your husband to suggest that you are greenlighting this guy. I don't know what's going on in his head. The only exonerating, I think exonerating is going to be the word of the day. The only exonerating explanation could be that your husband is such a guileless, uncreepy, nice guy that he could never imagine making an unwelcome or unprompted advance upon a woman. And so he can't wrap his head around the fact that there are men out there in the world who are capable of that, despite the news, despite everything that's happened every day in human culture for thousands of years. He can't wrap his head around it. I want to kick your husband's ass right down the stairs. Go and complain to management. You can say, if you think there's something cultural going on and it's a misunderstanding on his part that you don't want him fired, but you want him scalded, you want him talked to, you want him threatened, and that would be to his benefit. Because if he's doing this to you, he's doing this to other women on the property. And he's going to, if nobody talks to him about it, if nobody threatens him or writes him up about it, he's going to lose his job eventually. Speaking of other women in the building, you might want to talk to some of the other women in the building and find out if he's doing this to others. And then you can go to management as a united front. You should also, even if you just go to management yourself, Ask them not to identify you as the person that complained lest you be retaliated against in some way. This person has access to your home. Management has to be sensitive to that. So if you can, by complaining, get management to come down on him hard to get him to understand that he can't act this way, you may save his job. And who knows? Maybe he has small children at home who depend upon him. Maybe he has a spouse at home who depends upon him. And you would be not just helping him out but helping those people out as well. You are not required to feel unsafe in your own home in deference to maybe a cultural difference that you're inferring. He could just be a fucking creep doing this not just to you, vulnerable, stay-at-home new mother, but to other women in the building. Complain and kick your husband's ass down the stairs. Women come in for this sort of attention. Everyone's screaming and yelling on the internet right now about some idiot article about how to get a woman at the bus stop wearing headphones to talk to you. And rightly so, because everywhere women go, they're subject to this kind of malentitlement-driven harassment. You are entitled to not be harassed that way wherever you go, but particularly in your own home. Play this call for your husband. Dude. Stop being an asshole. Come to the defense of your wife. 
Stop accusing your wife of inviting this unwelcome attention. Don't be a fucking idiot. Don't be a fucking sexist piece of slut-shaming shit to the woman who just bore your child. Be on her side. She did not do anything wrong. Wrong has been done her. Link arms and fight this together. And you stay home when the dude comes to fix the fucking garbage disposal. Hi, Dan, and your wonderful, supportive listener community and tech-savvy at-risk youth. I was calling to ask a somewhat complex question. I am 35 and bi and married to a woman. We have a daughter together. She's three. Um, I love my life. I'm very happy. My coming out process with my extremely conservative family was quite painful. I left home when I was 17. My sister, she's my half-sister, um, she was six at the time. And we, I was estranged from my family. We did not speak for 13 years. And my mom and stepdad, who <clears throat> are extremely, like, right-wing, assembly of God, but, like, like, falling down, speaking in tongues, like, sending me stuff about how I'm evil and everything um, for the past, for the last 12 years, for those prior 12 years, finally came around, and I got to reconnect with my sister at her graduation, which was amazing. And my sister is fantastic. I love her so much. She and I are very close now. And I always suspected that she was somewhere on the queer continuum. All her friends from high school ended up being gay, and she never really dated anyone, and she just you just kind of, kind of tell, especially with their relative. And she actually did come out. She came out as bi a couple of years ago to me, but she has not come out to my, my mom and stepdad, her mom and dad. And she's struggling with whether or not to come out. I have, as an avid listener of your show, encouraged her to come out and do the, give them a year to whine and cry like babies. And then, threatened to take yourself out of their lives if they won't, won't do it. I mean, you know, I, I took myself out of their lives for 13 years and it was painful and horrible, but it turned out okay. I mean, my stepdad is still religious crazy and I won't have anything to do with him, but that has more to do with abuse and other things in the past. And I'm just not interested in bringing that into my life, but my mom is very supportive. I don't know why she won't come out to them. My wife is encouraging her not to come out to them because it will be, quote, annoying and painful and there's no point. I'm really hurt by this. I'm hurt by the fact that my sister isn't taking my example and coming out. I'm hurt that my wife is telling her she doesn't need to come out. I'm hurt that she gets to have the benefit of not coming out and still salvaging her relationship with her parents, my parents, without having to go through what I went through. And I'm hurt that I'm just, I'm just hurt. I'm hurt. And I don't know what to do. You seem a little over-invested in your half-sister, not just coming out to her parents, but doing it just like you did it. 
And you seem to expect that she'll get the same sort of reception that you got. And hopefully that won't be the case. Hopefully your parents, 13 years uh, or longer, uh, 15-ish years after you came out, are in a better place and a more understanding place and will be more receptive and welcoming. I think you need to back off. You've spoken your piece. You think she should come out. You've relayed to her the advice that I often give, which is tell them, give them a year and a half their freak out, assuming they have one this time. And then if they can't be decent to you, withdraw from their lives because the only leverage you have over your parents as an adult child is your presence. But you know what? At 17, she's not an adult child yet. She's 17 years old, not even 18. Can't drive, may be dependent on her mother, your shared mom, and her dad, your stepfather, in a way that you weren't at 17. Maybe she has an expensive education that she'd like to see them help out with and she doesn't want to risk that yet. And there's a lot of people who fear economic retaliation and delay coming out a little bit until they're more secure and on their feet and it's the right time for them to take that risk. It was the right time for you to take that risk at 17 or Perhaps you were unprepared for the reaction you got and it wasn't the right time, but once you were out, what could you do? It's not the right time for her. I do think that it's okay for you to encourage her to come out, but then you have to respect her decision. The stuff that your wife is saying is a little odd. The It would be annoying, painful, and there's no point. I'm going to read into that no point point, something that people say often about whether people who are bi need to come out to their families at all because if they end up in an opposite-sex relationship, they never need to come out. They never need to tell the truth that they're queer to their parents because they will be perceived to be straight because they're in this magical opposite-sex relationship. And I disagree with your wife if that was her point, that was the no-point point that she was making. I disagree with her 100%. Bisexual people who are in opposite-sex relationships should still be out Bisexual people, there's three times as many bisexual people, according to some stats, than there are gays and lesbians. Bisexual people could rule the queer universe that they often complain about, feeling so oppressed in, if they just all came the fuck out. And it sucks to be closeted. It's painful to be closeted. It sucks to have to edit yourself. It's painful to look at the people in your life who say that they love you and wonder if they really would if they knew who you really were and to carry that all through your life because – you never came out because you didn't have to because you ended up in an opposite-sex relationship as a bi person, that's painful. So that's the point of coming out, to avoid that pain, to avoid that doubt, to know that the people in your life actually know you for who you really are and love you for who you really are. So there is a point to people who are bi coming out, even if they're in opposite-sex relationships. And it's not just to rule the queer universe. It's to be known and loved for who you are by the people that you know and love and to trust that they actually love you. And to make the world and your families and families are where the world starts, to make your families a better and safer place for the other queers coming up in it by being out. Even if you are only bi and in an opposite sex relationship and can therefore pass. So I disagree with your wife, but I want to agree with your wife a little bit in telling you to just back off and this isn't your decision and this isn't your fight. Obviously, you still carry anger around the way that you were treated, but you need to separate that from your queer half-sister. You're punishing your queer half-sister. You're directing anger toward your queer half-sister because of the way you were treated by your parents and by one of her parents. And that's unfair. You're kind of, if you're going to let this anger fester and grow, you're kind of bashing her. You're kind of treating her in a hostile, unfriendly, unloving way 
because you're angry about the hostile, unloving, unfriendly way that you were treated by these people when you came out as queer and you're going to treat her that way for not coming out as queer on your schedule. Not cool. Not fair. You spoke in your piece. She knows what you think that she should do. And you have a right to do that, to share your opinion, to give her that download, to give her your advice. And then she has a right to take it or not take it. But rest assured, just because she's not taking it now at 17, still living at home with your mom and stepdad, doesn't mean she's not going to take it ever. She's thinking about what you said to her. Give her some space. Give her some time. Hey, Dan. My name's Rachel. I'm 23 years old. I've been in a relationship for over a year. I'm very happy, very sexually satisfied. I'd say I come about 85% of the time, which is pretty impressive considering before this boyfriend, I was kind of like a science project. My question's about the other 15% of the time. Do you think it's rude if after my boyfriend comes, I whip out a vibrator and finish myself off? I don't want him to feel emasculated. I've asked him before, and he seemed kind of like, yeah, sure, uneasy about it. But, I mean, like, I want to get mine. Don't whip the vibrator out. Leave the vibrator out. Have it already handy. Have it on the table. Have him get used to it being present and it being a tool at your disposal and his disposal to help you finish yourself off or to help him finish you off that 15% of the time you can't get there through his efforts or dick alone. The sad he's having is an attempt to, in a small way, not an assholey way, edit or control your sexuality. And you just need to let him know that that's not going to work. And so he needs to get over the sad and he needs to regard the vibrator and its presence in your shared sex life as a given. So no more asking his permission. Believe me, as I like to say about dudes, if he needed a nun and a goat and a canoe in the room to come, there would be a nun and a goat and a canoe in the room, not hidden. They would just be out in that room when you entered it to have sex. If you need that vibrator in the room and occasionally pressed up against your clit in order to come, put it out there, have it on the table, have it at the ready. Don't give him an option. Don't give him a choice. Hey, Dan. So I am a 20-something-year-old gay male. Um, I've been dating my boyfriend for around five months or so. And, I mean, things are really great. Like, he's just, like, a really kind, awesome guy, like, super smart, like, really sexy. Like, it's just, like, really great emotionally. But, you know, since the beginning of our relationship, I've been realizing that I'm having, like, a really hard time finishing like during sex like whether it be like oral or anal or him just like jacking me off like I'm just having a really hard time finishing so sometimes where I'll initiate sex and thinking you know maybe this will be 20-25 minutes and it starts taking much longer I'll start getting in my own head and I'll stop thinking about sex and I'll start thinking about you know wow it's taking a really long time uh is he getting bored what else do I have to do today all this stuff which in effect prolongs it and, and it ends up taking longer and longer. There have been a lot of times where we'll start having sex and it'll be taking so long. I'll just be so out of it and I'll just tell him, you know, uh, enough, like, thank you, but like, let's move on. Let's, let's stop this. It's just, it's not working. So, um, so with that situation happening over and over again, I guess our sexual relationship is really starting to take a toll on our emotional relationship where when that happens um immediately afterwards we're both in this weird headspace you know where i feel frustrated because i feel like 
you know, my body has kind of betrayed me in a way like this feels good. Why aren't you doing anything? Um, and he feels frustrated because he feels like he's, you know, sexually inadequate. Like he's not sexually pleasing me, um, which is false. I just, I just can't finish. I don't know why. So I kind of guess I have two questions for you. Um, one, when, you know, it starts taking me a, uh, longer than I anticipate, how can I get out of my own head? And two, you know, what are my other options to make it not get in the way of our relationship? My advice for you is the same as my advice or similar to my advice to people with boner issues. They get worried. They get performance anxiety. They're worried they're not going to be able to perform. That is performance anxiety. And then they're not thinking about the sex they're having. They're worried about whether or not they're going to get hard. And that's just not a sexy thought. And then they can't get hard. And the thing to do in those moments, if you're someone who has that problem, is just take the pressure off. You're going in worried about their expectations. Well, shift everybody's expectations and then you don't have to worry. You say, if I'm hard, great. We can do those things that you can do with hard dicks. If I'm not hard, we can do other things. In your circumstance, what you say is, if I get off, great. If it takes some time and I don't get off, great. We can do other things, non-sexual things. We can get up. We can make breakfast. We can go out. We can read the newspaper. We can get online. We can do other stuff. We can be done with sex and then circle back later. And if you can shift your expectations, then you're not going to fall short of your expectations or his expectations. The expectation when you guys have sex is you're going to enjoy each other. You're going to be intimate. You're going to have intimate physical contact. Perhaps you have this expectation that he always gets off or usually gets off. And there should be an expectation that you may or may not. And you should be freed of being judged or pressuring yourself or feeling like you've failed him or him treating you like he's inadequate in some way because he ain't inadequate. He just has to accept that. He has to embrace that. And this is a little quirk in how your body is working right now. And the work around is not wringing your hands, is not guilt trips, is not staring at your dick and tapping your foot and trying to rush it, the workaround is freeing yourself from these expectations. And just like with the person who gives himself permission to be hard or not, that person is likelier to be hard. That person, once they stop worrying about whether they're going to get an erection, if it is indeed psychological, not physiological, is likelier to get an erection. They're not staring at their dick thinking the sex begins or ends with the arrival of the erection. Same with you. Once you give yourself permission to come or not, doesn't mean you're going to come every time, but you'll probably find it easier over time to come. And sometimes you won't come and you guys will get up and do other things. And then you'll be at the kitchen counter and you'll be hard and you can call him over and he can jack you off or suck you off. And in two minutes, you will be able to achieve once you've given yourself a break, given yourself permission to come or not, you'll be able to come 10 minutes after you stopped trying. Hi, this was a comment for the guy in episode 514 um, who was worried about one of his friends um, having a, a jerk-off bid scene online. Um, one option, if he's still really worried about it, I guess, could be to send um, the friend an anonymous, you know, create an anonymous email, send the friend an email, you know, with the video and some sort of message to, you know, not freak him out that he's about to be blackmailed or something like that. But it's advice I've heard on the show before and... Um, there's a chance that this guy might have more videos put up online without his knowing if this kind of continues on. So just an idea. I just wanted to comment on the Anthony Weiner situation. 
Uh, and thank you for being reasonable about all of that. I just think it's really funny that we're all pretending that the thing that we have a problem with in this situation is the extramarital part of it. The fact that he was sexting with someone who was not his wife. I don't believe that for one minute. I believe that if it had been photos of him and his wife tying each other up or engaging in anything more, just anything sexual, really, that we would have just as much of a problem with it. We'd be just as squicked out by it, and he would pay social and professional consequences for it. You know, you've said it before on your show that if 60% of men and 40% of women are engaging in extramarital affairs, then that means that most marriages are being touched by infidelity. But it also means that most of the people judging Anthony Weiner are full of absolute shit. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to one of the questions that you fielded in your live uh, Chicago show about how to have hot sex while trying to have a baby. And it's tempting to give in to your suggestion to just resign yourself to crummy sex while you're trying to get pregnant. I would suggest making sure once a month you have really great sex during a non-fertile time, takes the pressure off completely, forces you to connect again as a couple without thinking about potentially making a baby that night. Just remember that sperm is a totally renewable resource. There'll be more there tomorrow. So once a month, uh, just have sex for fun, and it'll help you in the long term trying to get pregnant. Thanks. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The deadline for submitting films for Hump Film Fest 2016 fast approaches. September 30th is the deadline. If you want to get your film and your ass in Hump, go to humpfilmfest.com and click on submit for info about doing that. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. And speaking of Twitter, Rachel tweets, amazing that I am now listening to Fake Dan Savage's podcast on the reg. Thanks to a recommendation from my mom. Hashtag proud daughter. Hashtag anal sex. Hi to Rachel and hi to your mom. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. We're back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.